Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back for another edition of the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, here as always with John Mitchell. This week we're going to be talking about all the Week 11 action. Uh, best wins, worst losses, the biggest surprises, offering out some game balls. In our second segment, we'll be diving into an exciting Week 12, a really deep slate of games that we'll be looking at against the spread. And then in our final segment, we'll be diving in to look at the garbage we offered up in Week 11 before we pivot back to Week 12, offer you our upsets and locks of the week, and dive into some food and drink ideas. Before we get started with our uh, dive back into Week 11, John, how are you doing this week? I'm doing pretty well. I've mostly gotten over this past weekend, you know, so um, hit that turning point in the week where everything looks a little bit better, you know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, I'm pretty good, you know. Um, A loss like Alabama had this last week, you know, doesn't hurt as much anymore, uh, just as you get a little bit older and stuff like that, doesn't quite carry the same oomph, I guess, so, but, you know, still still a little somber mood in the Mitchell household, not going to lie. I completely understand. Believe me, I've I've felt enough pain like that, as we all do the deeper we get into our, fan, our uh, fanaticism. Well, let's dive into Week 11. Hopefully we won't talk too much about that Alabama-LSU game. I don't think there's too much that we can really say about it beyond... You know, the epic nature of it all, but let's uh, let's leave it there. What you have as your best win of the week, John? You know, in the, in the interest of being completely impartial, I think it's LSU's win over Alabama was the best win of the week. Um, what a great football game, too, to be honest, Zach. A, a far cry from the last game of the century we had where it was defensively dominated. Neither defense had much of any kind of answer, particularly in the second half for the opposing offenses. Um, Obviously, the big story was Joe Burrow continuing his ascension up the Heisman ladder and now really the easy favorite at this point in the season, barring something dramatic. He's going to be hoisting that trophy in December. Uh, You know, LSU just jumping. They just look like the more prepared team in the first half, to be honest. It was Alabama made some uncharacteristic mistakes. LSU scored. I mean, the game turned right at the end of the half, I think, is where the game was decided. You can talk about what happened in the second half, what have you. But the game was decided in the last 30 seconds of the second quarter when LSU scored two touchdowns in the final 26 seconds of game time to change a a 19-13 score to 33-13 at the half. Um, That's just too big of a hole for anybody to climb out of um, against a team as good as LSU. So... Obviously, credit Alabama for fighting back in the second half, but, you know, LSU did what they had to do. Every time they had to make a play in the second half, they made that play to be able to hold off. Now, I think LSU is unquestionably the number one team in the country at this point. Um, And, you know, I can probably even afford one loss from here on out, Zach, with the resume they have uh, and ended up still probably being in the playoff. It's hard, even as an Alabama fan, to not feel some kind of, good I guess for Ed Orgeron just he just seems like a remarkably good dude uh obviously his guys love playing for him and this was such a important milestone victory for him because you know 
several years ago, he got the LSU job because he had an action plan and a promise of beating Alabama. Um, and he finally did that. It took four tries, but he finally did that. Um, and you could just tell how much it meant to him at the end of the game, the emotion and stuff he had in the postgame press conference on the field, um, just the, the raw emotion and what that meant for him personally after, you know, everyone derided LSU for hiring him in the first place, letting go of Les Miles and Orgeron getting the full-time gig after a mostly successful stint as the interim. So I don't know if there's ever been a coach that has changed the narrative of themselves this dramatically after the failure he had as the Ole Miss head coach and now coming to LSU. And now he's got a team that could legitimately win a national championship. So hats off to him for all the hard work that's really paid off. Yeah, it really speaks first and foremost to growth narratives. Yeah, when Orgeron had that job at Ole Miss, he was at a much younger place in his career. And it's interesting, especially seeing the trajectories of USC and LSU. Uh, the fact that the Trojans decided not to stick with him after he had a successful interim stint there as well. And he's sort of been a Teflon coach like that, where he's just bounced and, you know, things things just kind of don't stick to him. He's able to, to move right on and just continue working the task he has in mind. And LSU really mirrored that on Saturday in Tuscaloosa. So I, I think you're exactly right that it was that late, first half stint that really big sort of momentum swing there that completely altered the course of the game and after that Alabama playing catch up in the second half as as well as they did do it and as close as they did come to coming back it's an unfamiliar territory for them they don't have the muscle memory for the, that sort of late-game heroic, late-game comeback. It's just it hasn't been there for them. They haven't had to do it. And so I, I think, part you know, it's good forging in the fire. And at the same time, it's definitely unfortunate if you are a fan of the Crimson Tide. Yeah, I mean, I was I was happy, though, Zach, to be honest, because uh, you could have easily given up at that half just as – Bad as things went in that last minute of the first half, you could have seen a team that just kind of quit, really. And then they didn't. They fought, like you said, without having a lot of experience having to play from behind like that. They fought tooth and nail and really had a shot there at the end. Um, if the defense could have gotten one stop in the fourth quarter, they could have got the ball back in as hot of a hand as Tua Tungavailoa had. You didn't want to give him the ball back in the fourth quarter with a chance to win the game. That's for sure, particularly with guys like Devontae Smith, who seemed like he was scoring a touchdown every time he touched the ball, and Najee Harris in the backfield making play after play. But just a great college football game. Uh, that's what the sport's all about, is seeing two highly ranked teams going at it and delivering. And it's always nice when a game really lives up to the hype. Yeah, it definitely did live up to the hype. And honestly, my best win of the week was the other well-hyped game of the week. And I think Minnesota did an incredible job taking down Penn State. They played their way right into the top 10 and into the college football playoff discussion with that victory as one of just a handful of undefeated teams left in the country. 
I think the big thing was that the Golden Gophers really exposed the Penn State secondary. Tanner Morgan was ridiculously effective throwing the ball, completed 18 of his 20 passes for 339 yards and three touchdowns. And his favorite target on Saturday was obviously Rashad Bateman, who caught all seven targets that came his way for 203 yards and a score. Just an impressive performance by both of those guys. And the thing is, is the Nittany Lions didn't play poorly. They racked up 518 yards of offense, but three really costly Sean Clifford interceptions ended up proving incredibly costly for the Nittany Lions. The thing is, though, is both teams are still alive in the college football playoff race. Honestly, either one of them, they win, they win out and they're in. Because Penn State, if they beat Ohio State, has the head-to-head tiebreaker in the Big Ten East. And Minnesota, at this point, it, it, it's hard to see anybody beating them for the, for the rest of the regular season. It's really easy to see them getting to Indianapolis at 12-0. and the the best chance obviously is Wisconsin and that makes me somewhat happy as a Badgers fan but at the same time the fact that the game's in Minneapolis and the fact that Minnesota is playing as well as they are on both sides of the ball it it it's hard for me to do envision any scenario where they actually get upset at this point of the year yeah, I mean, row the dang boat, right, Zach? I mean, at this point, yeah. B.J. Fleck, another guy, another coach just like Orgeron that you can't really help but root for, uh, one of college football's best personalities as a coach. And Minnesota proved a lot of doubters wrong. I don't think a lot of people thought they had much of a shot against Penn State. Um, I think Minnesota's offense was so much better than I really envisioned them being against what had been up to this point a really dominant Penn State defense. Like you said, Tanner Morgan was just – ruthlessly efficient making play after play after play and doing everything he could and like you said Minnesota's defense coming up with those three interceptions um you know if you're a a Big Ten quarterback and you're playing Minnesota I can give you a piece of advice don't throw anywhere near Antoine Winfield Jr. yeah that's the best piece of advice I can give you (laughs) that guy just has his dad's ball skills and will make you pay for that he had two interceptions in that game both coming in really crucial moments to really quell some momentum heading in Penn State's direction. So remarkable win for Minnesota, arguably one of the best wins in program history at this point. Uh, They really are in the driver's seat to play for the Big Ten title. And, I mean, at this point, you know, they're getting love from the pollsters and they're into the top ten as they should be. Uh, You can't really make the argument anymore that they haven't played and beaten anybody after this weekend. No, not at all. That was a huge statement win right when they needed it. Switching gears, obviously for both Alabama and Penn State, like we mentioned, this wasn't a season-killing loss by any means, the fact that they were playing in undefeated matchups. But some teams certainly had costly losses. What did you see as the worst loss of anything that happened this weekend? You know, I wasn't surprised to see Western Kentucky go to Fayetteville and beat Arkansas with the way the Razorbacks have played and the way the Hilltoppers have played this season. But the margin of defeat, Zach, 45 to 19 in favor of Western Kentucky, that's just not 
becoming of a Power 5 team, not just an SEC school, but a Power 5 team, period, dropping a game to a Conference USA opponent by 26 points on your home turf. And obviously that was the final nail in Chad Morris's coffin, as it had to be. Uh, that's the second group of five loss Arkansas suffered this year. Um, you know, they were getting blown out by San Jose State. They made a, a rally um, in that game and still ended up losing. It's just been one thing after another, still winless in the SEC the last two seasons with no end in that in sight with LSU and Missouri remaining on the schedule. But, uh, you know, a great win for Western Kentucky. I think they are one of the best teams in the Conference USA. But if you're a program, a proud program like Arkansas, you can't drop 45 to 19 home games to a program like Western Kentucky. And that's no disrespect to the Hilltoppers because I do think they're a really quality team. But a 26-point home loss as an SEC school against a group of five teams, unacceptable. And obviously the Arkansas leadership agreed with that assessment and made the move to move on from Chad Morris. And, you know, maybe even for the best because maybe it took something like that to finally be like, all right, that's that's it. That's indefensible at this point. We can go out and get somebody else. And I do think it's a tough job in Fayetteville right now, particularly in the SEC West when you're competing against Alabama, LSU, Auburn, and now all the Texas A&M oil money that's pouring in with Jimbo Fisher. It's a really difficult job. So I think, you know, that has to be taken into account. But just Arkansas played like a team that had absolutely given up. Yeah, they absolutely did. It. I mean, you mentioned losing by 26 points to a group of five school. You can't lose by 26 points to any school as an SEC school. I mean, there are a couple of division opponents that you might expect that against. But at the same time, you're not coming in expecting it in any game if you're an SEC program that's playing up to an SEC level. I think that it, it was definitely among the worst losses of the week for sure. Personally, I went to ACC country. I thought that Wake Forest coming into that game against Virginia Tech, I'm not going to say that I didn't see it as a potential trap for them especially with Clemson coming up the following week. And the fact that Virginia Tech was coming off a near upset of Notre Dame as it was. But the Demon Deacons had a chance to be ranked for that showdown with the Tigers, and they botched that opportunity. And, you know, Jamie Newman threw two interceptions, completed fewer than 50% of his passes, and... The Hokies looked great on defense. They held they held Wake Forest to 63 rushing yards and 301 total yards in that victory. And I think the biggest thing about this that made it the worst loss for me is this isn't costly just for Wake Forest, but it's costly for the entire ACC. Because at this point, it looks like Clemson might play zero ranked teams in the regular season. And as we mentioned previously in the podcast, it's a razor-thin edge for an ACC team to get into the college football playoff this year. Basically, if you were to strip Clemson from the name and just look at the resumes blind, nobody's picking Clemson this year. It, it, It just wouldn't happen. And that's not to say that they don't deserve a shot of being in that discussion as the defending national champion. But at the same time, 
the resume that they have this year just doesn't hold up to what anybody else has. And Wake Forest was supposed to be that last saving grace for them. And it's going to be really hard for Wake Forest to get back into the rankings at this point. Yeah, I mean, the divide in the ACC you can see pretty easily if you look at the spreads this week. Clemson's a 33-point favorite over Wake Forest at this point. That's how big of a gap Vegas at least sees in that conference. And on the other side of that game, too, Zach, what a turnaround Virginia Tech's had in season so far, too. I mean, the Hokies a few weeks ago were losing, lost 45-10 to 10 to Duke, you know, and since then they're 4-1 and one in their last five games with the one loss coming by a single point against Notre Dame. And now, I mean, Virginia Tech's very much in the thick of the Coastal Division race at this point. It's likely going to come down to their game with Virginia at the end of the season to decide that. Uh, the Hokies trying to ruin the hope of there being seven different division champions in seven years in the ACC Coastal Division if they spoil Virginia's chance of winning the division. So hats off to Justin Puente, too. I, I think he's done a remarkable job for a team that really looked dead in the water five weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, at the end of September, we were talking about how hot a seat he was on. And at this point, like you said, it's basically one of the Virginia schools is going to be playing for for the ACC championship this year, barring some craziness in the ACC, which is, needless to say, a crazy conference. So I'm not going to go so far as to say it's locked in stone, but we're getting rather close to that that final game of the season between the rivals being for a de facto division championship. Well, switching gears, let's look at biggest surprises. Um, obviously, you know, these big games, it's it's hard to say that a result going one way or the other is a surprise when you're looking at a couple of ranked teams, but there were certainly some surprises throughout Week 11. What came out biggest to you? You know, speaking of remarkable in-season turnarounds, Illinois has now won four straight games after a 2-4 and four start. And now they're bowl eligible. You know, another coach that looked dead in the water was Lovey Smith um, a few weeks back. It was looking like there was going to be time to move on from him. Um, and now the Illini are just beating everyone they play, starting with the upset over Wisconsin and now rolling through um, to having beaten Michigan State. And it's not just the fact that Illinois beat Michigan State, because by itself that's probably not a major shock with the way the Spartans have played. It's the fact that Michigan State led the game 28-3 to in the second quarter, and Illinois just dominated the second half, outscoring Michigan State 27-6 to in the second half. They scored that late touchdown, last-second touchdown to end the half to really gain some momentum. But just a complete collapse by Michigan State, really calling into question even Mark D'Antonio's future in East Lansing, which is kind of wild to think about. But his stubbornness to change philosophies and change his staff um, at Michigan State could end up costing him his job after just a phenomenal um, coaching job he's done with the Spartans uh, over the last decade or so. So I, I, I'm not surprised that Illinois won, but I'm shocked that after seeing the score was 27 to three in this in the second or 28 to three in the second quarter, seeing later that Illinois had come back and won that game. But good for Lovey Smith. Good for the Illini faithful. I mean, they've had some really rough years in Champaign, so you got to feel good for Illinois getting that sixth win already and being bowl eligible with 
no real everything from this point now is just icing on the cake. Yes, certainly, especially for the preseason predictions for how they would finish. <coughs> I um I definitely think that at this point it I, I don't think D'Antonio gets canned, but I think he gets a nice pleasant retirement package. You know, I think he, he they're the type of program that's going to let him go out gracefully but I think at the same time we might be seeing Luke Fickle in East Lansing soon so that that's really sort of one of those big jobs he's definitely been holding out for and I could totally see that being uh, the coaching situation at the start of 2020 the way things are going down at the end of D'Antonio's career here yeah, that'd be a great fit for both. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it would be a wonderful marriage of coach and program and a very similar philosophy with the ability to modernize in a way. So I I, I went a little bit further west to one of the, or, or I should say the latest game of the week in week 11, uh, put me on the East Coast, and I still can't avoid those after dark beauties. Um, and honestly, San Diego State had a chance to open a three-game lead in the in the Mountain West's West Division, and they didn't look anything like a division contender against Nevada. They never held a lead against the Wolf Pack at home. And the thing is, is the defense once again showed up. It's always, The defense has been showing up all year for the Aztecs. They held Nevada to 226 total yards of offense um, and lost. And lost that game 17-13. And, it, you know, basically the Aztecs are pretty much out of the group of five race at this point. And the Wolfpack, on the other hand, they reached bowl eligibility for the second straight year in that win on the road. So, on one hand, great win for Nevada, horrible loss for San Diego State, which, again, still has a one-game lead in the West Division, but things are narrowing really quickly, and... As I said before, there's no chance at a New Year's Six Bowl, even if they were to upset Boise State in the Mountain West Championship game. So, big surprise. I I did not see Nevada winning that game at all. Yeah, I mean, if you want drama, tune in to the late-night San Diego State game every week. That's the sixth time this year San Diego State's played a game that's been decided by 10 points or less. It doesn't matter who they play. The game's going to be close, but yeah, especially with that being a home game, Zach, it's really shocking. I mean, this is the same Nevada team that Hawaii beat 54-3 to a few weeks ago, so you wouldn't think they would have much of a shot against the Aztecs. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. Definitely, definitely was surprised to see that ultimately be the result. Yeah, definitely glad I didn't think of the committee sneaking them in when I looked at my, my uh, top 25 projections on Saturday evening. 
Let's move on to individual performances because there were a lot of great performances in Week 11. What do you say we start out on offense handing out game balls, John? Who did you like for your game ball this week? You know, deservedly, everyone's talking about Joe Burrow's performance in Tuscaloosa. I mean, he was 31 of 39 for 393 yards and three touchdowns. But I actually went with a different offensive player for LSU, and that was Clyde Edwards-Elair, who um, threw the air on the ground, did everything. It seemed like every time LSU had to have a play, they were going to Elair, and he was making it for him. He rushed for 103 yards on 20 carries. He caught nine passes for 77 yards. And he scored four touchdowns in the game. Um, he's the one who caught the touchdown right before the half to put LSU up by 20 and really what felt like the backbreaker. And he's the one who scored the two fourth quarter touchdowns uh, on plays that really look stuffed in the backfield. He was able to break a couple of tackles. He scored both touchdowns LSU had in the second half. He caught a pass on a third and 10 way short of the sticks in the fourth quarter and muscled his way for a surprising first down that extended a drive that ultimately ended up being a touchdown. You know, if Alabama makes a stop right there, we could be having a totally different conversation today, but just his effort, you know, Elair wasn't the most highly recruited guy. He hasn't been talked about as past LSU running backs like Leonard Fournette, like Darius Geis have been talked about. Um, He's undersized, but you can't measure heart when it comes to a football player. And Elair's got miles and miles of heart. He showed that. He put LSU on his back time and time again on Saturday, and I was so impressed with his performance. Definitely worthy of a game ball the way he came out, uh, both in the running and the passing game, as you mentioned. I, as people will never probably be shocked when they hear it, I went to Group of Five Country for my offensive game ball this week. Uh, East Carolina nearly pulled off an upset of SMU in Dallas. And Holton Ehlers had, you know, he threw for 498 yards and six touchdowns. And his big target was Tyler Sneed. The wide receiver came out huge and hauled in right about half of the quarterback's yards and half of his touchdown passes. Sneed finished with a ridiculous 19 receptions for 240 yards and three scores uh you know every time you looked up he was catching another pass and it that's the reason why East Carolina put on another barn burner as SMU had to hold on to their hat so it's it's in a losing effort, but I, I I would be remiss if I didn't highlight somebody hauling in 19 catches in a game. So hats off to Sneed and enjoy that game ball. Oh yeah, my goodness, well deserved. Uh, one of the better singular performances of the season so far. Honestly, really put everything on his back. Uh, speaking of the number 19, uh, my defensive game ball, Zach went to Daniel Batuli, the linebacker from Tennessee, who had 19 tackles, 10 of which were solo, had a tackle for loss in the backfield, and really keyed a, an important Tennessee defensive effort on a, on another evening where their offense didn't shine the brightest against a, a Kentucky team who admittedly is down to a wide receiver playing quarterback. But Lynn Bowden's one of the most talented players in the country and constantly makes plays anyway. Um you know, Batuli had 19 tackles, came up big. 
Tennessee really had the bend but don't break defense. They gave up 300 rushing yards in the game, but only gave up 13 points to the Wildcats. And now Tennessee, uh, maybe the theme this week is in-season turnarounds because the Vols looked pretty dead in the water earlier in the year, too. They started 0-2, um, obviously losing to Georgia State and BYU, and then were 1-4 and after um, – losing to Georgia, and since then the Vols are 4-1 and one in their last five games with the one loss coming to Alabama. They're 5-5 five and five with a really good shot at making a bowl game if they can beat either Missouri on the road or Vanderbilt at home to finish the season. So Batuli's been a real key to a really resurgent Vols defense the last few weeks. Yeah, I think that's a really great choice. And honestly, I'm going to stick with the number 19 as well. Because my defensive game ball this week goes to Terrell Bernard, the linebacker at Baylor, who's played a huge role in Baylor's rise up the poles and into that last handful of undefeated teams in the country. You know, he played a key spot in holding TCU to 23 points through triple overtime. Uh, Led Baylor... Obviously, as we mentioned, with 19 total tackles, six of them were solo. Uh, He had one sack. He had three total tackles for loss. And then he had that interception of Max Duggan that he returned 20 yards to set up Baylor in the red zone for a field goal. Um, Just in every possible way, Bernard came out huge and... That's a reason why Baylor is still undefeated as they head into that key game against Oklahoma that we'll be talking about soon enough. Yeah, another great choice. I guess 19 is the number of the week. Yeah, 19 for 11. On that note, everybody, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll be shifting to 12, week 12, that is. And looking at five key games against the spread, including that Oklahoma-Baylor matchup. So stay tuned. We'll catch you on the other side. Welcome back from the break, everybody, to the podcast. We're switching gears and talking about Week 12 action now, looking at five key games against the spread. We're going to start off in Big Ten country this week. Here actually close to right where I'm sitting right now for the podcast, just about a mile and a half, two miles down the road at Beaver Stadium, where Penn State's going to be hosting the surprising Indiana Hoosiers, who like to control the clock and limit opponents' possessions. So we look at this, and uh, Penn State's a 13.5-point favorite in this game at home, just under two touchdowns. And have to wonder, do you think Indiana has any chance in this contest in State College, John? I mean, I do. I, I think Indiana is a quality team. I'd feel better about it if Michael Penix hadn't gotten hurt for the season. I think Peyton Ramsey's, you know, if you look statistically, been just as good. But Penix has been the guy that's really led the resurgence of the Hoosiers this year. So it, it really depends to me, Zach, on motivation coming into this game. Can Penn State bounce back? from losing last week? Will they kind of have a chip on their shoulders after losing to Minnesota, you know, with the Ohio state date looming um, next, can they, you know, put together a complete performance? I think that 13 and a half probably gives enough wiggle room to feel good about the Nittany lions in this one. I just, I think their defense is going to really 
bounce back from last week. I think their secondary, like you said in the beginning, was a little bit exposed. I just don't know if Indiana can do enough down the field. Like you said, they like to kind of control the clock. And I think that really plays into what Penn State's strength is in the front seven. I think the Hoosiers will really have trouble doing that, which I think will force Ramsey to try to make some plays down the field that I'm not sure if he's going to be able to do. So I like Penn State to bounce back in this one. I think this will be a close game for a while, but I think Penn State comes out by two touchdowns. I I like uh, 31-17 in favor of the Nittany Lions. I I, I think that's a fair assessment of this game. Um, As I mentioned, Indiana is a real clock eater. And I think that's going to limit Penn State and how often they have this football. And that's why I think this could be, a, like, as you mentioned, I think it could be a little bit closer. And that's why I think it's going to be closer all the way down the, the stretch. Penn State's front seven is obviously going to get pressure on Ramsey. I, I, I think they have at least eight sacks. I would be shocked if it's anything less than that with that group, especially that front um, the X factor for me is how many carries will Journey Brown get in this game? Um, he looked incredible against Minnesota, but ended up not being utilized much. And part of that was having to play from behind. Again, as we mentioned with Alabama in the first segment, I think you can say it as well with Penn State. They've been a little bit more battle-tested in close games this year, but at the same time, they haven't had to play from behind very much, it's, and uh, I, I think it showed there as they went and kind of went away from the balance and went away from a guy who was really churning out some hard yards. So I, I, I ultimately think the Hoosiers cover this one. I, I think they lose, but I think they cover as a road underdog, something like 34-24. So fairly close to what you're looking at, but I think the Hoosiers might score once more late on the road to cover that one. All right, all's normal so far to begin the week. Yeah, definitely. I'm loving the way that looks. Let's switch to game two. We're going to go a little bit west, staying in the Midwest, however, for a key uh, formerly independent rivalry, now uh, Navy's in the American Athletic Conference, but they're heading to South Bend to take on Notre Dame. And this one's already been bet down from an opening line of Notre Dame favored by 10. And uh, so Notre Dame is now giving eight. And I'm wondering, do you think Navy has a chance of pulling off the upset in this one, John? I, honestly, Zach, I really do. Um, this Notre Dame team's thro- seen, or this Notre Dame team's shown a lot of chinks in the armor this year, um, particularly defensively. Like the the Irish haven't been as stingy, especially against the run. They're giving up 156 rushing yards a game. I think everyone knows that what if Navy does anything well, it's running the football and controlling the clock. Um, Malcolm Perry runs the triple option offense as well as I think I've seen anyone run it. Um, Navy's been just, I mean, spectacular all season long. You're talking about a team that was bad last year and they've turned around their seven and one still very much alive, Zach, not only in the American race, but in the group of five race and could really make a huge statement in the group of five race if they can go to South Bend and upset Notre Dame. Um, I know 
our Saturday Blitz colleague Gavin Jernigan is going to be really uh, paying close attention to this game and what we have to say about his midshipmen. Um, I, I actually like Navy to do the unthinkable. I like Navy to go to Notre Dame and to pull the upset. I think it'll be a low-scoring game. Navy limits possessions, and the midshipmen get a late touchdown to beat Notre Dame 21-17. Nice. I think Gavin's going to be really happy that we agree on this one, or really unhappy. I don't know which it will actually be, but I agree with you. I think Navy has a wonderful chance of, of winning in this game, because Notre Dame's strength in terms of their defense is in their secondary, and that does jack squat against the midshipmen. That, that means nothing for them. So, and as you mentioned uh, the Fighting Irish are a pedestrian 64th in the FBS, right there with that regress to the mean. So I, I think you're going to see Navy making that statement against a Power 5 opponent or a Power 5 plus Notre Dame as it really is in the grand scheme of things. They're They're effectively a Power 5 team, whether or not they like it. So... That's been the one thing that's been missing for Navy this year. That's the reason that they've, you know, as a one-loss group of five team, have been ranked below everybody else, even in the the AAC West race. You know, you've seen SMU, obviously, until they took that loss to Memphis being rated um, lower. But even after that loss, they were still rated ahead of Navy. So... I think this is the game that that they've really been waiting for. And I think it's going to, you know, the midshipmen have been winning by an average of 22 points a game. Notre Dame's only been winning by 15 points a game. And I think we're going to see a big spread in this one. But I think it's going to be Navy. I I think their running game is going to expose Notre Dame. It's going to be 38-28 Navy as the midshipmen not only cover and not only win outright, but they win by their biggest margin in South Bend since 1963. So congratulations, Notre Dame, on the win over Navy this weekend after this agreement that we've got. Usually when Zach and I agree on upsets, particularly, that's probably bad news. Yeah, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm sorry, Gavin, especially, uh, if you're listening out there. We did not consult on this ahead of time, so I I apologize. Moving on to Game 3, we'll just leave that there in South Bend. But moving on to Game 3, heading to the Plains, where Georgia is going to be facing Auburn in the Deep South's oldest rivalry. Uh, Win for Georgia locks up the SEC East crown and sends them to Atlanta for the championship game. But Auburn can throw a wrench not just in the SEC East, but in the entire college football playoff discussion if they win here. Auburn's a three-point underdog at home. Do you think that, I, I mean, we've seen them pull off some miracles against Georgia before. Do you think this could be another season for Bo Nixon crew to do that? You know, this game's really fascinating because there's going to be a lot of teams really playing close attention to it outside of 
these two fan bases because this game means a lot. Uh, both Oregon and Alabama will be big Auburn fans in this game because Auburn's continued well-being obviously helps Oregon because that's Oregon's lone loss of the season. So as, as good as Auburn can be, the better. And also helps Alabama with the chance to make a, a, a last statement to the playoff committee at the end of the season in Jordan-Hare. So all, Alabama fans for once will be huge Auburn fans in this game because it does – the Crimson Tide better to have Auburn entering that game nine and two and in the top 10 um, in terms of what the committee will think. I actually do think Auburn has a really good shot in this game. I felt that way for most of the season that this was kind of the game that I thought Gus Malzahn could get his signature win of the year. Um, It really comes down to can Jake Fromm make enough throws, I think, on the road. Bo Nix will play better than he has in recent weeks because he's got the Jordan Hare faithful behind him he doesn't have to go on the road and face a hostile environment obviously Auburn's had an extra week to prepare I think that means a lot too Gus Malzahn will have some extra tricks up his sleeves it'll really come down to I think can Georgia maintain some balance on offense Auburn's secondary is susceptible but they have a really strong front four maybe the best front four in all of college football so if they can get pressure up front make from uncomfortable if they can stop DeAndre Swift and the running game like I think they can I think Auburn's got a really good shot of pulling this mini upset over the Bulldogs this weekend. I actually do like Auburn to do that. I expect it'll be low scoring with two with both defenses kind of ru- ruling the day, and then Auburn ultimately coming out 23-20 over Georgia. Congratulations, Georgia. <laughs> uh, because I have Auburn as well. Maybe it's just the Duck fan in me that's rooting for it. Uh, maybe I should have gone with a reverse jinx here, um, but I also I agree. I think it's going to be a low-scoring thriller on the planes as well. Uh, I think that extra week of rest is really going to help Auburn. I saw it as 23-21, as I have written down on my paper here, looking at them covering as a home underdog and winning outright against the Bulldogs. So... Congratulations, Georgia. Way to go, Kirby Smart. You've got the uh you you've got the victory in the bag and sorry for the kiss of death, Auburn fans. Yeah, yeah, not only not only picking the same team, almost picking the exact same score on this one, so Yeah, that's that's a little scary. Uh so you can probably see Georgia twenty three, Auburn twenty or twenty one however that goes. Anyway, let's move back to Big Ten country for a little bit. Head to Iowa City, where Iowa is actually a three-point favorite against Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota toppled Penn State last week, as we talked about in our previous segment. They're one of only five remaining unbeaten teams, yet they're still an underdog on the road against Iowa. What gives? I, you know, it's one of the more curious spreads of the week, that's for sure. Motivation for Iowa, I think, is the big storyline here because the Hawkeyes, if they could have beaten Wisconsin last week, would have still been alive um, in the Big Ten West race. But losing last week gives them three losses in conference, so really eliminates them with Minnesota still being undefeated, even if they beat the Gophers on Saturday I don't know. I I didn't believe in Minnesota before. I was foolish in doing so, 
Um, I bow to your astute knowledge on the subject there, Zach, from last week. So I'm not going to make that same mistake again. I think it's a curious spread. I think Vegas wants me to pick Minnesota, but they don't get every damn one of these things right. So I like the Gophers. Their offense has just been rolling. I know Iowa's got a really good defense. I just don't think Iowa has enough offense to stick with Minnesota in this game. I think um, Antoine Winfield, again, is going to make some big plays in the back end. I think Minnesota wins, and I think they win something along the lines of 24-17 in this one, even on the road. And really, they move to 10-0 and effectively clinch the division at this point. I mean, not not effectively, I guess, but almost clinching the division with everyone else having multiple losses and the only thing standing in their way being a one win Northwestern team the next week. So I think the Gophers get the win. We have a lot of agreement this week, folks. Um, Before I go into my actual pick though, I just want to kind of give a shout out to one of the coolest rivalry trophies in college football. Uh, these two teams are on divergent paths in the Big Ten West this this year, but they always get to square square off for the Floyd of Rosedale. So this is a 98-pound trophy, a bronze pig, that was commissioned in 1936 by the Minnesota governor, Floyd Olson. And the thing about this is it commemorated a 1935 bet of a prize hog between the Iowa governor and... Olson, um, that the loser of the game would have to give to the winning governor. Um, and this bet was actually made to diffuse tensions heading into this game. It was sort of a lighthearted way to cut down on what was a really charged atmosphere. So in 1934, both of these teams played a really rough game and they came into the game undefeated in 1935 in Iowa City and basically they said uh, the governor of the time in Iowa Clyde Herring said if you um, if the refs don't take control of a game that they let get out of hand in 1934 our fans will deal with it you know he was basically putting the lynch mob on high alert and Olsen came in and he's like hey come on now like we're we're gonna hit you hard, but we're gonna hit you fair. And uh, what do you say we play for a pig? And uh, they ended up getting the pig from Rosedale Farms, and so it was the Floyd of Rosedale, and that's how the name came about for what ended up becoming an annual trophy game in the 1930s. On that note, there's your history lesson for the week, everybody. Now let's look at some more recent stats, because as I mentioned, Minnesota's on a roll right now. You talked about Antoine Winfield Jr. We've talked about him several weeks now, and he came into that Penn State game wanting to at least take the tie for the lead in interceptions in the country, and he did just that. Basically, he called his shot and he owned it. Um, so the question is, is how many interceptions will Winfield get this week on Nate Stanley? Iowa's been great at protecting the football. It must be admitted. They don't turn over the ball a ton, but Winfield's a different matter altogether. So 
the thing that really interests me is Iowa is 0-3 in competitions against ranked opponents this year. That's all three of their uh, losses at the moment. And they've lost all three of those games by an average of 4.7 points a game. So I think this one's going to be really close, but I think this is going to be their fourth loss against a ranked opponent by five points or less. And I see it Minnesota 21, Iowa 16, as they take the Floyd or Rosedale back to Minneapolis for their 10th of the year. Awesome. Uh, I love the history behind that, by the way. That's a lot of stuff I didn't know. So that was definitely fascinating to hear. So I really appreciate that. Definitely. Always a pleasure. You know me, I love talking history. Let's look at the fifth game of the week, though, that we're going to be talking about before we go to our second break. Oklahoma heads to Baylor, and Baylor is a a 9.5-point underdog at home, and Baylor is the undefeated team here. So the Bears are the last undefeated team standing in the Big 12, but they've obviously survived some close calls. The same could honestly be said about Oklahoma as well. So do you think that nine and a half point spread is a little high for these Bears? I think it's probably honestly fair, Zach. I think Baylor's been, and not to downgrade what <coughs> Baylor's done this season to get to nine and oh, because it's impressive. But I do think they've been a bit fortunate to get to nine and oh at this point of the season, um, really coming on the having beaten TCU in overtime, three-point wins over West Virginia and Texas Tech, a game-winning field goal to beat Iowa State. So, I mean, four wins decided by either overtime or three points or less. So, at some point, something's got to give there, you would think. Um, I I think Oklahoma knows at this point that they, you know, their fate's not in their hands. Even if they went out, I think they're behind currently what would be a one-loss Pac-12 champion Oregon or Utah at this point. So I think Lincoln Riley understands that this is the opportunity for the Sooners to get some style points in this game to really have a shot to potentially jump back ahead of the Pac-12 winner and Alabama, who's going to be still sitting up there pretty high as well. So I think Oklahoma needs that, and they know that. This is likely going to be a rematch uh, in a few weeks when the Big 12 championship game comes around, we'll probably see this game one more time this year. I think Oklahoma wins. I don't think it's going to be an outright blowout like Oklahoma would really like it to be, but I do think Oklahoma narrowly covers the spread. Um, so I, I took the Sooners 41-30. 41-30. All right. We got some disagreement now again, everybody. The universe is back on its axis. Uh because I'm I'm on the Baylor train at this point. I really think the Bears are ridiculously good. And we talk about Baylor having those close calls. Oklahoma lost to Kansas State, and they barely escaped Iowa State 42-41 last week. So it, it it's not as though the Sooners are just crushing everybody right now. And they, they come into that that game in Waco on a bit of a downturn at the same time the Sooners boast the best offense in the country they're you know bar none they lead pretty much every statistical category on offense and the you know being led by a Heisman candidate like Jalen Hurts does not hurt at all 
The thing is, though, is the Bears feel the top 20 scoring defense. They're giving up only 19 points a game. And in this case, I think Oklahoma's mediocre secondary is ripe for Charlie Brewer to have something of a breakout game. And I think Baylor comes out on top in this one. 45-41. Cover at home. Win outright. Have a nice, big, close call again for themselves and head in and honestly create some chaos because that's Oklahoma's second division or conference loss of the year and it opens the door for several other teams to sneak in there still so I I, I think the story in the Big 12 is going to be Baylor bust after week 12. Alrighty, that's interesting. That's for sure. I think it'll be a, a good game. I do think Baylor is a better team than anyone's really given them credit for, even being undefeated. They've kind of been disrespected, and they could have that chip on their shoulder coming into this game with a chance to prove something themselves. Honestly, I'm going back over my notes quickly, and I have five underdogs winning this week out of all five of these games. And or no, I have four of the five winning against. Uh, outright and five winning against the spread. So I don't know what it is about week 12. Normally you'd think it'd be week 13, lucky 13, that would send you over the edge. But there's something about this week and those lines that that have me on that path. So hopefully our agreements all go in our favor, everybody, and they do for you as well. But we're going to take our second break here for a quick minute, and we'll be right back to talk about the garbage we dealt out in Week 11 and uh, getting into our upset picks and our locks of the week before we finish off with food and drink. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back for our last segment this week, everybody. We're here uh, talking about week 11 and week 12, we're going to wrap up the last of week 11 before we finish up with some final few picks. Let's look at some garbage, John. Let's air out that dirty laundry. Let's eat our crow. Um, I'll go first, honestly. I, you know, I had a rough week last week. I went two, three, and two. And I, you know, I say I had two ties because Minnesota and Tulsa both covered like I said they would, but I said they would both lose. So I'm going to give myself partial credit on those, but I'll take a tie. I'll I'll, uh, leave it at that and take that the half win. Um, But Kansas State over Texas was just an outright bad pick of mine. I said Kansas State would swoop into Austin and steal that win away. I, I called for a 31-27 victory for Kansas State winning outright. And I expected a huge day from Skylar Thompson. And yes, he finished 17 of 27 for 253 yards and two touchdowns. Not a bad day at all. But he finished with net zero rushing yards against a Longhorns team that was among the worst in the country against the run. So in in that regard, you know, I I had some bad picks, but the worst was calling for Kansas State to win outright. I just had a lot of faith in them coming off that Oklahoma win. 
but basically it was like the energy was drained out of them. So you need to give yourself credit for that Tulsa pick, by the way, because you picked UCF to win that game last week. You just said Tulsa would cover. So yeah. go ahead and flip that the other way. I, 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 I went four and three against the spread. I'm not going to say that if I'm doing your method, I was also, I think, two, three, and two if we go that way. But, you know, four and three against the spread sounds better. Let's give ourselves a little bit of credit. Um, I'm with you on the Kansas State pick. I also went with the Wildcats. But I also said Penn State would go to Minnesota and win by two touchdowns last week. So I'll go there for my garbage pick. Um, I, did, I, thought the, I thought Minnesota was going to get exposed I was remarkably wrong. I was so impressed by the way the Golden Gophers played on Saturday. Now I'm fully on board. I guess I'm fully on the boat now, so I'm rowing right alongside P.J. Fleck at this point of the season. Um, but, yeah, I, I I really thought that would end differently. I thought Penn State's defense would dominate, and instead Tanner Morgan really showed how good of a quarterback he is and how good Minnesota's offense is overall. Because, I mean, statistically they had been really good on offense all season long. It just – they hadn't played a defense nearly at the level of Penn State's, but they showed that it didn't matter, that they're just a good offense no matter who's lining up against them. So shout out to Minnesota. They definitely proved me wrong, and I definitely have some crow to eat over that pick. No, I, I get it. And honestly, I, I think it was completely fair to look at Penn State and say they had a great chance of going in there and exposing an exposable team. Um, because you're right, they hadn't played a lot of great programs yet, but at the same time, they were beating the opponents they were supposed to beat by the sort of quantities or the margins of victory that they were supposed to beat them. And it, it, it's funny, we've talked about some of the work that Bill Connolly does in terms of looking at, you know, it's not who you beat so much as how you beat them. And they were beating teams the right way. So I definitely thought they had a shot there. Um, obviously didn't call it a victory. I, I, I didn't call for Minnesota to pull off the outright out upset. But you're right. It's one that goes in the win column against the spread for sure. So I'll take it. We were both four and three. But... I, I figured that was kind of a fun way to look at it, so I figured I would. Let's go back to week 12, though, because 4 and 3 will inspire you all to have a little more confidence in what we're about to talk about. So, we're going to start off with upsets of the week against the spread. What is the one that you just have absolutely locked in, John? For my upset this week, um, we've talked we talked a lot last week about the job Jonathan Smith's done in Corvallis for Oregon State. Um, the Beavers are a two and a half point home dog um, against Arizona State this week. I really like Oregon State to pull the upset. Arizona State's really played poorly the last few weeks. They've dropped three games in a row. They've really struggled offensively um, to get things going. So you know, I, it, it's interesting that. Oregon State would be an underdog at this point because I don't think they're catching anybody by surprise anymore because the Beavers have just been a pretty solid football team in the Pac-12 this season. Um, and they've got to win this game to have any shot 
at bowl eligibility. I think it's still a long shot because they finish on the road against Washington State and on the road against Oregon after this. But this home game gives them a shot to potentially split one of those last two games and get bowl eligible. Um, so I, I really like the Beavers, Zach. I, I've really liked them all season long. Um, I think that um, Jake Luton will have a really big game against a, an Arizona State secondary that's given up 269 yards through the air per game this year. So I like Oregon State to pull the outright upset, uh, 31-27 Beavers, and they get to 5-5 five and five with a chance to potentially get a six win and be maybe the most improbable bowl team of the season, counting even a team like Illinois. Yeah, they really would be. If the Beavers get to six wins, it's going to be a mind blower. And they have a really good shot of beating the Sun Devils the way that Herm Edwards' team has sort of nosedived in the in the recent weeks. I went to Big 12 country for my upset guarantee of the week, if you will. Um, Texas Tech is now a two-and-a-half-point underdog against TCU. The interesting thing is that this line originally opened with the Red Raiders a one-and-a-half-point favorite, so the betting has brought the line TCU's way very heavily. Um, You have a lot of bettors who are absolutely confident in the Horn Frogs, but this game is quite intriguing, especially given the fact that Texas Tech will be playing at home in it. So, I... You know, I think that Jet Duffy is the more experienced quarterback. He's obviously not a true freshman like Max Duggan. And the fact is, Douglas Coleman, not Antoine Winfield Jr., interestingly, is the player leading the country in interceptions per game for Texas Tech. And, uh, the you know, I think the fact is, I think Texas Tech wins this game by a touchdown Um, I didn't write down an exact score, but I think it'll be lower scoring. I think you could say, you know, like 28-21 or 28-20, something along those lines. And I think it's going to keep the Big 12 in absolute chaos because, you know, neither one of those teams are necessarily in the hunt at this point, especially after TCU lost last week. I think they had a chance to keep themselves in that hunt. But both of them at this point are fighting for bowl eligibility, and I think that the Red Raiders end up doing what they need to do at home and not just covering that two and a half points, but really making one final statement. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of, like you said, bowl eligibility, this is probably an elimination game for bowl eligibility. Both teams are four and five. If TCU can't beat Texas Tech on the road, um this weekend that means the Horn Frogs have to win their last two games and one of those last two games is on the road against Oklahoma to get to a bowl so that's probably not happening no disrespect to the Horn Frogs in that game or anything and then Texas Tech to have any shot they close with Kansas State and Texas both of which will be difficult games to win uh, but winning both winning one of those two is a lot easier than winning both so that's definitely an interesting game um so, I mean, moving forward, Zach, in terms of your lock of the week, where were you looking? Virginia Tech is a five-and-a-half-point favorite heading to Atlanta to play Georgia Tech. 
And the way the Hokies are rolling right now, we mentioned it earlier when we talked about their win. Um, they've won four of the past five, and that fifth game, that loss, was 21-20 at Notre Dame. So Justin Fuente has this team rolling right now. They're one of the best in the country in the red zone on both sides of the ball. They're third in red zone scoring. They're 13th in red zone defense. And I think that's going to pay off against a 2-7 and seven Georgia Tech team that has one win in conference, but not enough in the tank to, to get anywhere close to upsetting the Hokies. I don't think this one stays within single digits. I think Virginia Tech wins by at least two touchdowns to keep themselves in the hunt in the Coastal this week. You know, I've been really impressed with Jeff Collins this year at Georgia Tech. Maybe the biggest rebuilding job in college football, at least schematically. And they've really played some teams tight. If you look at their last three games, they lost to my, or they beat Miami on the road, which was a big shock. And then they only lost by 10 to Pitt and only lost by five at Virginia. So I don't know. There's something about that spread that worries me. Um, I, I also saw that and thought, wow, that's crazy. Virginia tech should be favored probably by 10 or so in this game, uh, more or less five and a half, but that's the type of spread that scares the crap out of me. The ones I immediately see. And I'm like, well, that's stupid because Vegas isn't stupid, you know, um, when it comes to that kind of stuff. But I, I would think I would agree, though, Zach. I, I can't imagine that Georgia Tech would pull the upset the way Virginia Tech's been playing. It's just there's something off about that spread that would worry me and make me not want to put any money down. And that's fair. I, I totally get it. And I think there's a difference between one of those upset specials you see with a team like TCU that's still in the running for a conference title at the moment that that happens versus a team like Georgia Tech that's at home, yes, but they're 2-7 and seven in the midst of a scheme change against a team with a very good defense. So I, I, I think there's enough wiggle room there that they can even, you know, maybe my two-touchdown estimate is a little bit high, but I think they at least have enough to win by a touchdown. Yeah, definitely an odd spread, though, that's for sure. One of the, in for my lot, Zach, um, maybe the weirdest spread of the week was Iowa State favored by a touchdown over Texas. I know the Cyclones are at home, but you know public money is going to be all over Texas as a seven-point underdog here. That one caught, that was the biggest one this week that just caught my eye, and I was just stunned. I would have thought this would have been closer to a pick em based off of that. Um but it's that knowledge that makes me take Iowa State minus seven, lock it in. Cyclones win by two touchdowns in this game, I think, or at least in the very least they're going to cover the spread because I guarantee you public money is going to be hammering on the Longhorns all week. That spread really hasn't moved since it opened either yet, which is really the flashing red light in the background because Vegas wants you to take Texas so bad. I ain't doing it. I'm taking Iowa State. I think the Cyclones bounce back from, you know, a one-point loss last week to Oklahoma. They were really right there. Not officially out of the Big 12 race with three losses. Effectively out, though, with Baylor and Oklahoma being two of those defeats and those being the teams ahead of them. But I think Iowa State's a better team than their 5-4 and four record shows. If you look at just 
how they've lost games this year. That one point loss to Iowa, that last second field goal Baylor got to beat them. And then the, the really stunning loss to Oklahoma State's the really only outlier other than the only outlier on their schedule and then losing by one. They've got the two-game losing streak. I think the Cyclones team is really good. I don't think Texas's defense is as good as they played last week against Kansas State. I think Brock Purdy is going to have a huge game and outduel Sam Ellinger, and Iowa State rolls to a two-touchdown win. I think that's fascinating. I... I, I, I like it. I, I think that Iowa State, I don't think they're even bouncing back after just a one-point loss against Oklahoma. Like, they acquitted themselves well and had themselves right there at the end with a chance to win that game. And I think you're absolutely right that Brock Purdy probably has more potential to take down Texas than a player like Skylar Thompson necessarily he's just got the tools to to make that happen so really fascinating I I I I think your your two touchdown prediction is nice and bold so I like that and I, I again I think there's enough play there that why not jump on it so yeah it's me reading the Vegas tarot cards at this point Zach like I I, like I said, I thought this game would be closer to an even spread than a seven-point spread. And the fact that I know public money is hammering Texas and it hasn't moved, that's your big warning sign. So if anything, stay away from that game. If you have the inclination to put a lot of money on Texas to cover it, I think that's foolish. So I, anyone out there who listens to me on anything and you know haven't had the greatest of records the last few weeks i would stay completely away from texas this week maybe don't listen to me and throw down a bunch on iowa state but just we've been doing this together a while zach in terms of looking at spreads and stuff like that that's one of the weirder ones i've ever seen yeah it it really is especially as you said the lack of movement on that is is the as you said, the biggest red flag of all. That's the flashing red light at you. You could bet it down to five, four, three, and you're still going to have people betting Texas in this game. That's the crazy thing to me, why it hasn't moved. That's what makes me think Vegas is just super confident in Matt Campbell's Cyclones. Yeah, exactly. So understand that confidence for what it is. And if you need to bet, I'm with you there. Bet. Iowa State. Before we head out, what are you betting your stomach on this week? What are you going to be eating and drinking, John? You know, uh, in terms of beverages, I had a coworker gift me a bottle of Spring Mill bourbon. I've never actually tried. Um, he gave. I've, I'm a huge bourbon fan. I usually stick with. Um, Four Roses or Knob Creek or something like that's usually been my go-to over the years. But he gifted me this bottle about a week ago now, and I haven't cracked it open yet. So, you know, I was really tempted to bust it open last week after Alabama's loss to drown my sorrows from that. But I held off, but I've held off for long enough, I think. I'm really intrigued to try it. It's a bourbon I've never actually tasted before, so... Um, I'll have a sixer of something beer in the fridge at some point too, but I'm going to give that a shot. And then in terms of eating, I've been really craving some homemade pizza. 
my fiance and I, one of the first things we did together cooking was make homemade pizza, you know, knead out the dough, put all kinds of weird toppings and stuff like that on it. And that's just a really great couple activity, I think, is doing that together. So I've been really wanting to do that again for a while. So I think this will be a perfect weekend. Alabama's got a really early kickoff this week against Mississippi State at 11. So maybe after that game, I can, you know, have other games on kind of in background. I don't have to focus on as much and then knock out some pizza. That'll be good again throughout the day. Figure out some weird different combinations that work. That's my favorite thing to do with homemade pizzas. Finding just stuff that I've had in the fridge for a little while and just throwing that on there. Maybe some grilled chicken or something from a different night or something like that to throw on there. It'd be really good. So homemade pizza is really fun. It's really fun to make it with somebody else. So that's what I'm going for. Nice. I love it. I was actually thinking of maybe doing calzone on Friday night. So again, that sort of playing with dough is always a fun thing to do. Can't, can't disagree in the least there, but honestly, the thing I've been craving more than anything, and it's something you mentioned, it might be a month ago at this point, but chicken wings, I've been craving chicken wings for a while now. And my wife isn't a big fan of the buffalo variety. She's not a huge fan of just going to that spice and vinegar. And so I'm thinking of doing a batch of sweet chili ginger chicken wings. And so roast off, you know, a big batch of wings in the oven with tons of butter. I'm a a huge advocate if you don't have a deep fat fryer right there for yourself and you need to cook off your wings in the oven, make sure you just like slather them like butter, like they have a butter addiction and you're, you're an enabler. That's basically the way I look at my chicken wings, but roast them off until they're nice and, and golden, you know, cooked through beautiful and then toss them with a combination of fresh grated ginger, some garlic, um, some lime zest and lime juice, uh, get some fresh mint, some fresh basil, and then some maploy sweet chili sauce. And just get it all tossed up together. Uh, hit it with some soy sauce as well. Um, you can even use some sesame oil at that point if you want to get a little bit more oil into it if, you know, you haven't killed yourself enough with the butter. Um, but mix that all up, toss it back in the oven for like 10-15 minutes until you get that sticky, glorious sauciness. And, you know, once it's thickened up and nice and, and cooled down just enough so that it's not molten and going to kill your mouth, dive on in. And uh, I'll be cooking up, I don't even know how many pounds, but we're going we're gonna to be measuring it in pounds this week for sure, and with a multiple there. And then um, to drink, I'm actually in, in, in a bourbon mood as well. So um, I've started to get more familiar with my, my fine purveyors of spirits here in State College. Uh, you know, the state liquor store just down the road. Um, (laughs) It could have been a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know which that I took a little while to actually go through their doors. Um, You know, as a grad student in my first semester here in town, probably a good thing that I waited until November to do that and got myself familiar on campus. But 
now I've done that and I got myself a nice bottle and uh, I got we bought a couple of bottles but I've got a couple of whiskeys here I got a bottle of, of bullet and I'm thinking of you know I was tempted to make Moscow mules but one thing we didn't pick up was vodka so we're gonna make some Kentucky mules and uh, as I mentioned, we're going to get some uh, some limes and some mint for those wings as it is, and some, you know, some ginger as well. So I'll also pick up some ginger beer, and other than that, that's all I really need to do is, and uh, there's, uh, you know, Otto's Brewing here in town uh, actually makes a pretty decent bit ginger beer that they sell bottled in the store. So I'll probably pick up a couple of sixers of that and we'll just do Kentucky mules throughout the day. Pair off really nicely with, as I mentioned, the lime and the, the ginger and the, you know, the mint in there as well, uh, to go with those wings. That sounds incredible. Definitely a nice pair, um, between the wings and the bourbon drink. So yeah, I, Definitely would be all on board that at your house. Yeah, come on over anytime. We got three TVs going. We got games all throughout the day from noon till whenever those after dark games end, Pac-12 or otherwise. And uh, so, yeah, whatever you all are doing for your Week 12 action, I hope you have tons of fun with it. If your team's on a buy, enjoy some of the games as a neutral follower because there's a ton of really fun action on the slate this week. It Honestly, this is, might be the best week of the year for your team to be on a buy because there are a lot of really good games. But if your team is playing, I hope they win, unless they're playing one of our teams, obviously. And, uh, yeah, I hope you have great food and drink to to fuel your day until then have a great rest of your week leading up to week 12 and we'll be talking to you again next wednesday thanks for listening to the saturday blitz podcast everybody